Oh no. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Thank you so much to the worship team. This is last week's sermon. Nobody wants that. I wasn't that good, you guys. <laughs> if you weren't here, you should go online and listen to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my name is Johnny. I am the campus pastor here at the bridge, and uh, we have the furnace on. So I assume that's why you're here. Um, my wife told me I had to turn our furnace up, and then she called me a cheapskate. And so, is anybody here still holding out at their house and has not? I see your hands. <laughs> Dwight, you are too enthusiastic about how cold your house is right now. Your wife looks very sad. Turn on the heat, man, please. I don't want to do your marriage counseling over your furnace. Um, <laughs> turn on your heat, people. It's too cold. It's, uh, it's Halloween season, and I always think about um, the funny things that we're afraid of. Uh, around Halloween. When I was a kid, we were, I grew up in a very conservative home. We didn't watch a lot of scary movies, but we did watch this one absolutely terrifying movie. It was, uh, it remains with me to this day, the chills that I felt when we watched it. And I, and I was afraid for a long time when somebody even said the title of this movie, the illogic of fear, right? I couldn't even think straight when somebody would even talk about it when I was a kid. And that terrifying, scary, awful movie was called The Shaggy Dog. <laughs> the Shaggy Dog. CGI has come a long way, okay? The, the transformation scene from man to dog was very scary back in the day. Uh, nowadays, it would look much smoother. But we're afraid of silly things, we, and fear makes us do irrational things, right? And so uh, this season, the season of Halloween and uh, trunk or treat and things like that, and uh, Josh, great job with the guilt. Yes, thank you. You should sign up. You absolutely should. Uh, not just because he guilted you, but because there's going to be a ton of kids. Last year, the Johnson Fire Department did this event without us, and our parking lot was full for them doing the event. Uh, and so they wanted to partner with us this year and make a thing where people can do both and, and walk between and stuff like that. So it's very cool. So do a trunk. Anyway, that's my plug. But I think a lot about fear, and I think a lot about kind of the irrational, illogical, or they feel uh, rational and very logical things that fear makes us do. So today, we are in the book of Acts, still uh, in our series called Together, and we have come to Acts chapter 6. And if you're reading through the book of Acts, you might come to Acts chapter 6, and you might just kind of skim through it quick and keep on going, because Acts is a, a book of action. There's always something going on. There's always movement going on. And Acts chapter 6 is the shortest book, or the shortest chapter, I'm sorry, in the whole book. And it's followed up by Acts chapter 7, which I think is the longest. Uh, it's, a real, it's a real manuscript uh, next week. But this is the shortest chapter. I think if you're reading, you might just skim right over it because it seems like it's a hinge point where the action is shifting away from what's happened in Jerusalem with the early church, and it's moving into the story of how the gospel is going to go out into the world. So it serves as a hinge point, and if we're not careful and we're reading fast, we can read right over chapters like this. But if there's something that I hope we're learning together, that I continue to learn, and I hope we're learning together, it's that there is no part of the Bible that doesn't have something for us. No matter how short or insignificant or weird, like last week, that was weird stuff, uh, but there's still stuff there for us, for the people of God, for uh, the enrichment of our lives. We can learn about God and his purposes for us. So I want to dig in together today to Acts chapter 6, and uh, we're going to read the first half, and then I'm going to preach, and then we're going to read the second half. So just to give you uh, some handholds for where we're going. So this is uh, the book of Acts chapter 6, verse 1. 
In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. What they're saying is, we are in charge of telling people about God, about preaching and proclamation. We shouldn't stop doing that in order to administrate how the food and how the resources are handed out. Uh, but they're apostles, so they use a little higher and mightier language than that. But that's what they're saying. They're saying we can't be distracted with this other job. We have our own important job. Brothers and sisters, they said, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor. You know, I should read these out loud before I preach. Timon. Hermanas and Nicholas from Antioch to convert a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So something is going on here in the beginning of Acts chapter 6. We have a situation where the Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in favor of the Hebraic widows. And because you are all biblical scholars, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and we can just move on to the next point, and you'll have no problem keeping up. No. Um, I didn't know this, so we're all going to learn together. Hellenistic Jews were, uh, were Jews who had grown up away from Jerusalem, uh, or they had converted to Judaism later on in life, like one of the, uh, the uh, deacons who was chosen. And so they were ethnically, usually, uh, and religiously Jewish, but they were not culturally Jewish in the same way that Jews who grew up in Jerusalem uh, around the temple and around all of Judaism would have been. So Hellenistic Jews might have been part of what is called the Diaspora, and the Diaspora was those Jews who got scattered out into the uh, empire of Babylon. If you were here for our Old Testament series, you might remember we talked about the Babylonian captivity. These were the Jews who had been scattered out through the empire and had been raised away from Jerusalem, uh, which is the seat, really, of their religion. And so they had picked up the traits of other cultures, like language. So Hellenistic basically just means Greek culture. They spoke Greek. The Hebraic Jews, on the other hand, they grew up right there in Jerusalem. They spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. They, they lived next to the temple. They were culturally Jewish, not just ethnically and religiously, but they had a whole culture built around what it meant to be Jewish. And so th- these are the groups of people, and there's dynamics at play. If you remember uh, you know, our first sermon in this series, we talked about when we put people together, it gets messy. And there's some messy dynamics here because we've got Jews from different kinds of backgrounds and they've all converted to Christianity. They don't call it that yet, but they've all converted to the way of Jesus. And now they are trying to sort out what it looks like to live together. That's the situation. And so the uh, Hebraic widows are getting the resources while the Hellenistic widows are not. And that's kind of the situation. Now, it's important to note that there's no malice in this passage. We, we don't see that the uh, Hellenistic widows are being overlooked because people didn't really like them. 
uh, because people didn't want them to be amongst them. We don't know exactly why, but the way that the passage goes, uh, we, we shouldn't think that there's any sort of negative feelings that are driving this happening, that the widows aren't being overlooked out of malice. It might just be a cultural difference or a language difference or whatever it is. So there's no malice at play here. Um, they loved each other and cared for each other. But even when we have the best of intentions, right, it is, over, it is easy to overlook those who are different than us. So even though this early church had the best of intentions about taking care of all of their members, it's an easy thing for us to overlook people who are different than us. And if the, the Hebraic Jews were in control, kind of, of the situation, it was easy for them to overlook the Hellenistic Jews. So this week, um, I was on uh, Facebook, and I saw the Reformed Church in America, that's our denomination here at the bridge, uh, the RCA, and the RCA had a post that said, this Sunday that we are in today is Disabilities Awareness Sunday. And as soon as I saw that post, it struck me that there are a lot of parallels between what happens to the Hellenistic Jews here in Acts chapter 6 and, uh, and what is happening to people with disabilities and, and families who have uh, children who have disabilities. There's, there's some parallels that happen uh, in the church today between this passage and folks who are living in some way with a disability. So um, I have a daughter who is disabled. She's very young still, so we're at the front end of understanding what all of that means for her life, but we are kind of experiencing this reality, and we are realizing that in a world built for non-disabled people, the needs of people with disabilities are easily overlooked and neglected. And these needs aren't usually overlooked out of malice. It's not because uh, as a culture or as a church here this morning, we look at individuals with disabilities or families who have children with disabilities and we think, oh, well, they're other than, they're separate, we need to back away. It's not out of malice. There's no ill will intended in these things. But it happens out of the fact that we are not used to being aware of the different needs that people carry. We are not accustomed, if we are not disabled people, to thinking about the world through that kind of a lens. It's easy to overlook that. Or uh, it could be that we're nervous to approach people who have a disability. We're nervous to approach a family who has a child with a disability, whether that be physical or cognitive or whatever it is. And we feel nervous in that moment. What if we say the wrong thing? What if I put my foot in my mouth? What if I overstep? And we think maybe it'd be less offensive if I just ignored it completely. If I didn't talk about it or if I, if I just kind of stayed away from that topic, it might make everybody a little bit less uncomfortable. But in doing that, we end up leaving people feeling alone and unseen and uncared for. And again, it's not out of malice. We don't do that on, because we're upset or angry because we don't like people. We don't do that out of a sense of uh, anger or resentment or anything like that. It's just the nature of being around people who are different and not being able to see from a new perspective. So this morning, we have individuals and families who live with a wide variety of disabilities, cognitive, physical, whatever it is, uh, who are part of our church body, who are part of our congregation. And as one of those families, I can say that it's a hard thing to feel overlooked or unseen. Now, as the pastor, that doesn't happen to me as much. Uh, you all have to talk to me. It's contractually obligated, right? Like, you have to. And so I don't really have to feel that that much. But, you know, generally speaking, uh, we don't 
You might tell me how cute Eliza is, but most people aren't asking how she's doing. How is her therapy? How are those things? And it's easy to see, uh, not, not deal with those things, not deal with any of that type of questions or awkwardness or whatever it is, and not, not see people who, where they really are. We have uh, moms and dads among us who fight the health and education systems for their kiddos. My wife does this. Uh, I should help her more than I do with this, but I know I watch it, and I know that this happens, that if you have kids living with disabilities, you're always fighting the system for those kiddos. And, and folks like that need the church to be a place where they can find rest and love, where they don't feel like they have to fight for their kids to get what they need. We have uh, kids and students who deal with the difficulties of school and peers uh, and, and living with disabilities within the education system and living with disabilities among peers who don't have them. And, and for them, church needs to be a place where they can come and be seen and loved for who they are, where they can find a safe space to live out the image of God. We have adults who daily have to navigate a world that was not created with them in mind. If, you, if you're an adult living with disability, you, you understand that the world was created for non-disabled people, usually by non-disabled people, and you have to live with that every single day, that the world wasn't designed with you in mind. And at church, they should find a community of people who know them and care for them exactly the way that they are, right? This is a lot of what the Hellenistic Jews or uh, yeah, the Hellenistic Jews in our passage wanted. They wanted to be seen. They needed a community where they could come with their needs and their needs could be met. They needed a community where they were seen for who they were, where they were taken care of, where they found acceptance. This is what they needed in this passage. The Hellenistic Jews, this is what they were looking for. They had been overlooked by culture and now by this new community. And so what they did is really important. What they did is they voiced their complaints. They said, hey, we are here. We are here and uh, we are going to need to be taken care of. And in response to this, the apostles appointed deacons. And specifically, the apostles chose Hellenistic Jews to be the deacons. And that's really important. That's really important because the apostles said, we, uh, not only can we not stop doing our responsibility in order to take care of this, right, the administration of goods and resources, they said, but we also realize that we need people who can see these people. We need people who have a vision of the whole. And they actually picked Hellenistic Jews to become the deacons of the church. They said, if that's the problem, then this is how we're going to fix it. We're going to become a body that shares leadership amongst who we are, Hellenistic and Hebraic. No matter what your background is, you can be part of the leadership. And one of the people that is named a deacon is Stephen. And Stephen is a pretty unstoppable kind of a guy. Uh, he, uh, as we'll see next week, he uh, is so unstoppable that he gets kind of a, a shorter life, but that's for next week. Uh, in this passage, we see that Stephen becomes a deacon and then starts to get to work right away. So this is Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. 
but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen is one of these new deacons in the church and he is supposed to be responsible for the distribution of resources. And I'm sure he does a great job, but the passage does not concern itself with how good of a job he does at that. It immediately tells us he's also filled with the Spirit and is doing signs and wonders all over the place. So uh, Stephen has a responsibility that I'm sure he's living up to, but he's also so filled with the Spirit that he has gone out into the marketplaces and the synagogues and the places where people gather and he has started to share about Jesus. He has been filled and gifted by the Spirit to perform signs and wonders and to preach and teach. But his preaching and teaching have gotten him into trouble with a group called the freedmen. The freedmen. Okay. So like the Hellenistic Jews who we just discussed, who many of whom came from the diaspora, right? That, that group of Jews who had been spread out around the world or, or who maybe had converted later on. The freedmen were a group of Jews who were from these far-flung places. They had grown up far away from Jerusalem, out into Asia, all over the Roman Empire. And they had lived and grown up in those kinds of environments far away from the seat of Judaism, which was Jerusalem. They had been scattered to different parts of the world, but they still retained their Jewish ethnicity and their Jewish religion. Unlike the Hellenistic Jews from the beginning of the passage, this group had not converted. They had not accepted that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so even though there are similarities, that's one pretty big difference because this group of individuals had not chosen to believe in Jesus. And they were some of the fiercest opponents of the gospel. The thing about this is, from the perspective of the freedmen, from the perspective of uh, the passage, they had pretty good reason to not want to hear what Stephen has to say for their opposition to his message. This group of freedmen had grown up and been raised in an environment where the practice of their faith would have put them at constant odds with the culture around them. They grew up far away from Jerusalem where the worship of Yahweh was considered normal. They grew up in places where they would have constantly been considered outcasts and weirdos as religious freaks, as people who just didn't get it, as people who couldn't fit into the systems that they were supposed to fit into. They had grown up constantly under siege, is how they felt, by the culture around them. And they had to retain the faith that Moses had given to them. They say that at the end, right? The faith that they had been given by Moses, and they felt like it was their responsibility far flung in the empire of Rome to maintain the faith. 
One commentary I read this week said that they had to constantly secure their identity against the constant threat of dilution or destruction. It was always this space in the middle. Their faith was either going to get diluted to the point that it wasn't good for anything anymore or it was going to be destroyed. They had to hold on to this. They had to protect it. For generations, they've been protecting it. And now, one of their own, a Greek-speaking Jew named Stephen, a Hellenistic guy who should understand the pain of diaspora, is speaking a message that they see as an assault to everything they have been protecting. It's an assault on everything that they have been handed down by their parents who protected it before them. And this moment for them is an anxiety and fear-inducing moment. When faced with the message of Stephen, they are filled with an anxiety because they are supposed to be protecting this and what Stephen is saying will radically change it. This is fear and anxiety inducing. And so what we see them do is respond to that flood of emotion. Uh, At the end of July, our staff, the whole staff of Meredith Drive and the Bridge went through something called Crucial Conversations. Uh, and uh, Pam Dykstra, one of our elders here, is actually a, a trainer, a teacher in Crucial Conversations, and she uh, led us through this whole thing. I've, my, I might have talked about this before. I'm sorry if I have. Um, but she, uh, basically, she, it's how we can talk to each other as teams and have hard conversations with each other and get past maybe obstacles and hurdles that we're facing and how to, how to have cohesion and move forward as a team. And it was great. It was two days of training. There was videos and there was books and I was soaking it all up and it's all good. And one of the things we learned about in Crucial Conversations was what, it's what's called the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain. And that is the part of our brain that gets activated when we are in a moment of stress or fear or anxiety. The reptilian brain. And basically, that part of the brain gets fired up And when it gets fired up, the part of our brain that makes good decisions and logical decisions is like, good night and go sleepy time. And now it's all, it's all iguana all the time, you guys, okay? We're full reptile. Here we go. Uh, and so the reptilian brain takes over and we are in fight or flight mode and we're like ready to wrestle, okay? And so a lot of the training is basically how to get the other part of your brain to wake back up. Like, come on, man, wake, I, I'm freaking out. You got to wake back up. So that's a lot of what we talked about is getting out of our reptilian brain. So we had literally just finished two days of training. Literally just finished two days. We're packing up our stuff. And I get a, a call or, or some sort of news somehow, and I am just triggered, man. I go fully guana. I can't even lie. It was stress and anxiety inducing. And I, uh, I think Pam probably wanted her money back after that, <laughs> after seeing me just lose it almost immediately after we do this training. It was terrible. I went full reptile, you guys. It was uh, we talked about it later. We talked about it and we, you know, we caught back up, right? Uh, I was not being logical. I didn't want to think straight. I didn't want to see it from somebody else's perspective. I was like worked up. Josh can tell you he had to talk me down. He gave me a ride home that day and just talked me down the whole time. I was worked up. I was full reptile, right? It was stressful and it was anxiety. 
And we've all been there. Every single one of us, even the coolest of cucumbers among us here this morning, has these moments where we get tripped and triggered, where we go to that reptilian part of our brain. Fear and anxiety flood us with all of these emotions and all this stuff, and we can't control our thoughts anymore. We're not being logical. We've all been there. This is just a weird quirk of our biology. And I think that's some of what we see happening in this passage. The freedmen... Uh, they hear Stephen and it sends them to that place. The fear and anxiety take the wheel. They can't see straight. And if they could, if they could hear Stephen, if they could really understand what Stephen was telling them, they would see that he is not coming to destroy their religion. Stephen is not coming to take away the things that they have held dear. He is not coming to strip away what they have been handed down from Moses. What Stephen is coming with is the fulfillment it's the, it's the end result. It's the natural conclusion of those things that they have been taught and believed. This is not a destruction of their religion. It's a culmination and a fulfillment. And if they could see what Stephen is saying, they would see that Jesus is the answer to the question that they've been asking. But they can't hear him. They can't and they don't hear Stephen. They are like me in that classroom. They are filled with anxiety and fear about what they think his message represents, and they go into a full fight against him. They go right to the fight. And this is really the flip of the situation that we just saw at the beginning of this passage. The apostles were also in a stressful situation, And the the passage doesn't expound this for us, but think about if you're the apostles and you feel like you are on mission for God and you are doing this thing and you're part of this community and everything is going good. I mean, the numbers are growing. It's everything is up and to the right and things are going, it's on fire is how you feel. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this group of people comes to you and they say, this is not, this is not going well for us. We've been left out. We've been ignored. We've been over." looked. That's a stressful and anxious situation. They're presiding over this new group, and a complaint has come to the community. It it was possible that the apostles could have responded out of fear and made very different decisions than the one they made. This complaint could have created fear in them that maybe there weren't enough resources to go around. Well, if we start to spread the resources out to more people, will we have enough resources? The fear of scarcity is a very real fear. What if there's not enough? And it could have triggered that fear for them. They could have responded with fear that their authority was being questioned. How dare these people come and talk to us about this? We are the apostles, right? I mean, like, come on, there's a status here that might be, they might feel is being assaulted, that, that someone's coming for their authority with this complaint. They could have responded out of fear. They could have responded out of a fear about how the Hebraic Jews were going to feel about this change. Because inevitably, if you make a change, there will be a constituency of people who are being cared for the way things used to be, and they might not like the change. They might not like that you want to spread it around a little bit more. And so they could have responded out of fear to how that was going to affect the Hebraic Jews and how that could affect the community. They could have done all of these things. Just like the freedmen, the apostles were faced with a situation with the potential to pull them into the reptilian brain. 
right into where fear and anxiety take the wheel. But they go a different direction. So uh, theologian Willie James Jennings writes, the church lives in the tight space between faith and fear. And only the Holy Spirit keeps that space from collapsing in on us. My less theological way of saying that might be that following God always requires a lot of faith and he will always lead us into places that make us afraid. That's the nature of what we do as members of the church. Following God will always lead us to places where we have to confront fear head on. The apostles and the freedmen were both in the space between faith and fear. But where the apostles leaned into the Spirit, the freedmen turned away. Instead of holding tighter, the apostles saw that the Spirit was empowering others and they joined in the movement of God. They saw that the Spirit was at work within the Hellenistic Jews and they opened their arms and released some of their authority and power to that group of people. Faced with the opportunity to recognize the fulfillment of their faith, the freedmen held tighter out of fear of what they would lose if they believed the message of Jesus. They had an opportunity to turn toward faith, but they turned toward fear. Whether we are aware of it or not this morning, we are all living in the space between faith and fear. And we are all dependent on the Spirit to keep that space open. And I'm going to be honest, there is plenty to be afraid of this morning. There is plenty to be afraid of. Like the freedmen, we might see ourselves as fighting against culture. We are the last stand between a godless future, right? And we could see ourselves as being in this kind of a mode where we have to hold on to this nugget of truth that we have been given and we have a responsibility to fight for it and we can be afraid of what that fight looks like. Our culture can be a scary thing that must be stood against. Or our fears might be more personal. We're afraid for the health of our families. We're afraid about our financial stability. Uh, The future freaks us out. Because what is in the future? We don't know. And it's freaky. Will we have enough to pass on to our kids? Will we have enough to take care of our kids until they need to get out of the house? Will we have to take care of our parents when they can't take care of themselves anymore? Will we need our kids to take care of us when we can't take care of ourselves anymore? These are all real fears that we live in all the time. And the thing about all of these fears, fears about our culture and our church and our families, is that I think they are all opportunities to lean into the Spirit. To recognize that to be human is to be stuck in between faith and fear and to believe that it is only God who can keep that space open for us. Because the alternative is to lean on ourselves, to lean on our own understanding and believe that we have the answers that we can see our own way out of this fear, that we, if we just exert enough control over our situation, we can make it through on our own terms. We know best, and we can build bunkers against culture, and we can build hedges around our family, and we can start to look internally at ourselves and ours. We begin to flip into that reptilian brain that says, me and mine first, and nobody second. It's fight or flight. And that's where we can get into. 
The freedmen of chapter 6 are instructive here because they were so threatened by Stephen that they couldn't even walk away from the argument. They were so threatened that they had to have him arrested. Me and mine first and nobody second. That is not the posture of the people of God. Like the apostles, when we are faced with fear and uncertainty, we are being called to lean into the power of the Spirit instead of our own power. Guys, that is easier said than done. Much easier said than done. Because leaning into the Spirit, trusting God to keep the space open for us, doesn't make the questions and the fears go away. Those fears and questions that we have about our culture, our families, or ourselves, they don't necessarily just disappear into a happy cloud of smoke shaped like a unicorn when we say that we trust God. That's not really how it works. They're still with us. We still have to navigate those spaces and places. We are always living in the space between faith and fear. We yield ourselves to the power of God in faith and trust Him with the results. It doesn't mean that we are no longer aware of the questions or that we don't still get a little bit freaked out about the future. It doesn't mean that goes away, but it means that we trust that God has us and that God has a plan and a purpose that is good for us. And we don't get to know what it is all the time. And we don't get to understand it. And that's why we want to do it for ourselves and get out of this fear ourselves and get a higher insurance policy or whatever it is that we have to do to get out of this space. But the truth is we'd never get out of the space. All we can do is live in that space and trust God to keep it open. I don't know if that's a happy enough message, but that's the truth this morning. That's who we are as the people of God. And I pray that we gather together with that in mind, that we gather together so that we can see that we're not alone in the space between faith and fear. Here we all are. And the Spirit is here with us. God is with us all the time. And we don't have to be like the freedmen and hold on and cling to and keep tight in control. We can be like the apostles. We can lean into the Spirit and we can trust God because God always has the best for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are trustworthy. Much more trustworthy than ourselves. God, it's a hard thing to believe. It's a hard thing to believe that your plans are good and we don't have to take control and exert control and let fear run the day because you have us. God, but that's the truth. You are God. You are our Father. You keep us in the palm of your hand. Even when that's a scary place to be, God, that's where we are. Father, I thank you that you keep us, that you keep the space between faith and fear open for us, God, that through your Spirit we can have access to that kind of a life, a life of fullness where we are moving forward 
not because we don't sense the fear or understand the questions, God, but because we believe that you are bigger than all of that. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us as we don't always get this right. God, and thank you for your presence with us, always in us and moving us. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. And someone is going to take your chair away from you. Don't be